Um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 6. So this is the crowd that got even more extra sleep, right? So you guys are awake, you're alive, it's good, we're glad that you're here and joining us. I was doing a little research this week and I was reminded, I'm not an education expert, but when you look into learning styles, like different ways that help people learn, you find that there's a variety of opinions. So some people say there's four learning styles, some say there's seven, some say there's eight. I don't know which is true, uh, but I know that there are different learning styles. So how many of you would categorize yourself as a visual learner? Anybody say you're a visual learner? Okay, awesome. So for you, we need pictures like this, because this is What John 6 is all about, right? I should probably have more of this kind of thing. Some of you might consider yourself auditory learners. Now, what I read about auditory learners is that you prefer things in rhythms and in rhymes. So perhaps singing songs like we've just sung, the way, the truth, the breath of life, the Lamb of God, or El Shaddai, which means Almighty God. One name shall rise on every tongue, only Jesus. Perhaps the message of John 6 will come through to you today because we've sung that and there's a rhythm, there's a rhyme to it. It helps you to learn things in that way. But perhaps you're not a visual or an auditory learner. Maybe you're a verbal learner. Anybody a verbal learner? You prefer to hear things spoken, information spoken. You are my people. I am a preacher. I am glad for that. But in particular, those of you who are verbal learners, you don't just want to hear things spoken. You want to speak them yourself. So you might be one who reads. When you read, you need to read it out loud to really hear it, right? You might need to just repeat back what I'm saying to you. Feel free, all right? The more amens or come ons or just repeating, it's all fine, all right? I want to make sure I'm there for you, my verbal learners, all right? But some of you are physical learners, right? You don't learn it until you've what? Done it. Right, And you are the people who like to draw out diagrams and you are constantly probably in motion. You might need to pace around the back of the sanctuary. You will make me nervous, but go ahead, it's fine. All right, some of you are physical learners. You are probably constantly in motion and here's the deal. At the end of our service, you are going to hold the very point of the service in your hands. You are going to hold it, the elements, in your hands and perhaps then the message of John 6 will solidify itself for you as you hold the body and the bread, the representation of those things. Some of you are logical learners, which means you prefer to understand the big picture behind a piece of information. You tend to like charts and graphs. I don't do enough of that for you, so here you go. Here's a chart and graph for you. My engineers are happy right now, right? So there you go, faith in Jesus, satisfaction, it's complex. You would not believe how long it took me to do that. (laughs) It was ridiculous. For a while, the line was going so that like you could have a little bit of faith in Jesus but not be satisfied at all, and that didn't feel right, so I had to adjust my numbers. It's more complex than you think. Go home today and try to do a line graph on Word. Some of you are like, yeah, I learned that in fifth grade. For For my logical learners. Some of you are social learners. Right, so like for you, you like to learn in groups. And so what's gonna happen is you're gonna go to life group this week and as you're gonna sort of ruminate on this together and you're gonna talk about it and you're gonna talk about ideas and thoughts related to John 6, that's when it's gonna kinda gel for you. It's gonna come together as you think about that in a social context, right? And some of you, some of you are solitary learners, which means that tomorrow morning you're gonna wake up, you're gonna open your Bible to John 6 and you're gonna sit in the quiet and the stillness of the morning. And as you meet with the Lord in that quiet space, perhaps, Something's going to dawn on you. The, the message of John 6 is going to dawn on you. There's all these different types of learners, right? And here's the point. 
is, the, is this. It's not so much that like you're this type of learner, you're that type of learner. It's that different people learn the same lesson in a variety of different ways. That there are different ways for, for different people to learn the same lesson. And that's actually what we're going to find in John chapter 6 today. Now, from all that I just showed you, can you tell me what is the message of John chapter 6? Jesus says, I am the what? The bread of life. There you go. Some of you got it, right? You saw the picture. You saw the line graph, which was helpful, right? You heard the song. You see the elements, and you think, oh, yes, John 6. Jesus is the bread of life. That's the message. But what's interesting is that in John chapter 6, Jesus doesn't just teach one group of people that he is the bread of life. He teaches three different groups of people. And I don't know that they have different learning styles, as we've just discussed, but what they do have is a different predisposition towards Jesus. They think different things about him. And because they think different things about him, he's going to teach the same lesson to three different groups of people in three different ways so that they can get it. To everybody, he is the bread of life. And we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But he's going to try and approach that lesson for three different groups of people. Now let's talk about those three groups in just a second. But first, let's talk about what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the bread of life. Because that's a, if you've been in church a while, you've maybe even heard that phrase. It's one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where he's declaring himself to be something. And it sounds like a nice metaphor and a nice turn of phrase. But I want to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the bread of life. Now he says it five different places in this chapter. So it gets repeated a lot in verse 35, in verse 41, in verse 48, in verse 51, and then again in verse 58. There are 71 verses in this chapter, y'all. I'm not going to read them all to you, okay? But he talks about it in five different ways where he says either I am the bread of life or I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Or he talks about his flesh. In other words, talking about his cross. He says my flesh is the thing that is being offered for the life of the world. In other words, he's saying something about himself in this idea of being bread. But let's just look at one place where he refers to it. Verse 35. So if you have your Bible, look with me at verse 35. We'll also have it on the screen for you. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus, speaking to one of these three groups of people, says, says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And now he's going to give us a little more concrete idea of what that means. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so what is Jesus saying when he says, I am the bread of life? Here's what I, th- here's what I think we can summarize it. We can summarize it by that last phrase in verse 35. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, what he's saying is, I have the ability to satisfy you both now and in eternity in a way that nothing else does. Maybe let's say it more simply. You will never be truly satisfied in life until you come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. Until you partake of me, the true bread, you will never truly be satisfied. Now, I want you to understand, this is not, again, a nice turn of phrase. This is a really bold claim. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He is saying that you, as a human being, are designed as such that no matter your opinion about him, you may think you're satisfied, but you will never truly be satisfied in this life or after this life until you have partaken of him. He's the only one that is truly the food that you need. In other words, anything else you eat that you think is going to give you life and meaning and purpose and joy and hope and happiness, all of it is empty calories. He is the only food. Now, some of us like to boil Jesus down into like a prophet. They're going to do that in this chapter. They're going to make him seem like a nice teacher. Do you understand how big the claims are that Jesus makes? 
Now, I'm just telling you, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're kind of engaging this, I want you to understand this because I don't want you to walk away thinking that Jesus sure says some nice things. I want you to understand he makes a big claim upon you and upon me. He is saying that there has never been a human being who has lived that doesn't need to partake of him because they are designed in such a way and you are designed in such a way that you have not eaten. You are starving until you eat him. He is bread and nothing else is. So when Jesus says he's the bread of life, do you see what he's saying? That's what he means. He and he alone can truly satisfy. But Jesus in his goodness and his wisdom understands that that where we are really in some sense determines how we hear that claim. And so he deals with us where we are. And this is so merciful of him. But we're going to find three groups of people throughout the Gospel of John. And we're going to find them in particular kind of in this chapter. So this chapter almost becomes a real summation of the rest of the gospel in the types of people Jesus is talking to. Because in it, we're going to find that he's going to talk to these three groups. His disciples, those who are following him. He's going to talk to a group of people that are referred to as the crowd. They gather around, right? And it's a large group of people. And then he's going to deal with people who are his religious opponents. Now, John refers to them as the Jews, but when he says the Jews, when you see that in John, don't think, oh, ethnic Jews, all of, all of Jesus' followers that he's dealing with at this point, a lot of them, are Jews. So it's not just referring to Jews generally as a group of people, it's referring to those who are religiously observant and are opposed to the claims that he's making. So those are the three groups of people that we're gonna see here. Disciples, the crowd, and his religious opponents. We'll call them followers, fans, and foes. Okay, Jesus, and here's, here's John 6. Jesus wants to show followers that he is the bread of life. And Jesus wants to show fans that he is the bread of life. And Jesus wants to show foes that he is the bread of life. And so he's gonna do unique things for each one of them so that they might see that he and he alone can truly satisfy both now and forever. So let's look a little closely at those three groups. So let's start with our followers. And the first thing that we see is that because Jesus wants to show both followers, fans, and foes that he is the only way to be truly satisfied, the first thing he's going to do is with followers, and he is going to challenge followers in order to show them that he is the bread of life. He's going to challenge them. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to look at the beginning of the chapter to see, uh, to see Jesus challenging them. But we need to look at the end of the chapter, right? We're going to see how he challenges them at the beginning of the chapter in the first 15 verses. But it's not until the very end that we're going to see a little bit more about, what that, about who a follower is, like what marks a follower. So let's look at that. Let me give you an outline of the chapter, right? So the first part of the chapter is a pretty familiar story to a lot of folks. It's where Jesus multiplies bread and fish to feed over 5,000 people. Some of y'all familiar with that? That's the beginning of the chapter. Then, as a little aside, he walks on water, which is kind of a nice little aside. And then it returns to a conversation that he's having with a group of people, with the crowd, with the fans. And he's going to talk to them for a while. And then, based on what he says to the fans, a few verses later, the foes get involved. And they're not, they're not real keen on what Jesus is saying. And so he's going to engage with them for a while. And then at the very end of the chapter, he's going to return to his followers. And he's going to finally say a few last things to them. I want you to look at that with me first. So we're going to begin at the ending, all right? So verse 66 says this. 
After this, after what Jesus had said, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In other words, some who looked like followers turned out to be fans, and they turned away. But then, verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? You recognize this is a really important moment, right? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that. The very end of the chapter, what Jesus is doing for us there, what John is doing for us, is he's helping us capture what it means to be a follower. Now, I love that it comes from Peter's mouth because Peter is a pretty imperfect follower. If you've read the Gospels, you know that, right? Not a one of us who is trying to be a follower of Jesus does so perfectly. But what it means to be a follower here in John 6, what's revealed to us is that a follower is someone who says, no matter how confusing it might get or how hard it might get, I want to follow you because there's no one else like you. There is, there's no one that has the words of eternal life the way you do. That's what Peter says. And so a follower here in John 6 is certainly not someone who is without doubt or challenges or frustrations, but a follower is one who through it all clings to Jesus because they recognize that he, among all other people in the history of the world, is unique. And they find in him their life. That's gonna be important because it's gonna be pretty distinct from how a fan approaches Jesus. Jesus has a lot of fans, a lot of people who really love the the works of Jesus, who like some of the things that Jesus says. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. They seem pretty neat. But the follower is the one who when everyone else is walking away because something got really confusing or something got really hard or really challenging, the follower is the one who says, where else could I go? I love the practicality of that, by the way. Where else am I going to go? There's no one like you. I wonder if you find that to be true in your heart today. That when you look at Jesus, you say, where else could I go? You have the words of eternal life. How many of you have ever found it hard to follow Jesus? How many of you have ever been confused? What are you up to? I don't understand. How many of you have ever wondered, how on earth is this ever going to work out? My prayer for you is that you find in those moments what resides in your heart is not an understanding of all God's ways, not even an unwavering sense that, oh, it's all going to work out, but that what resides within you is a sense that no matter what, Jesus can't be abandoned because there's no one like him. There's no one like him. Whatever happens, wherever he takes you, there's no one like him. That's what the follower says here. Then the question that comes to us then is how does he challenge his followers? So let's look at that. If, if a follower needs to be challenged in order to understand that Jesus is the bread of life, and we do because we're prone to go and eat other bread. We're prone to think other things are gonna give life. And so Jesus challenges us, those who are followers, so that we might understand. So let's look at the first 15 verses then and the story where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes because it has something to say to us. Now this is the only miracle story in all, that is in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in all of them, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is more focused on the crowd, uh, the, the 
the guys writing, Matthew and Mark and Luke, those writing are more interested in explaining to you how Jesus perceives the crowd, how he thinks about the crowd, how he engages with the crowd, very much at the center of their mind. John, while acknowledging the crowd and teaching us something about the crowd, is more concerned with what's going on with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and the followers. John is more interested in that side of this story. So let's look at it and see what he teaches us. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who are seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, so there's our story in John chapter 6, verse 1 to 15. And it begins, the challenge that Jesus offers to his disciples is evident because uh, of what we find Jesus saying to Philip. And not just to Philip, but really to all the disciples. In the other gospels, the way this is recorded is that the disciples who have just been out, they've been sent out to do all kinds of miraculous works and serving Jesus. And they come back to him and he says, let's go away and get some rest. And they go to the other side of the sea and this crowd hunts them down. Because wherever Jesus is, they tend to want to be. And the disciples are exhausted and they're tired and they're hoping for some rest. And what happens is Jesus actually says to them, they say to Jesus, send the crowd away so that they can go get food. They're gonna get hungry. Jesus, who had had compassion upon them, had been teaching them all day long. So we're now late in the day. He's been teaching and teaching and teaching. And Jesus, because he felt compassion for the crowd, teaches them. And then the disciples say, you should send them away. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Now, as a follower, that might feel a little defeating, right? Here in John, the way John records it is he says, Jesus turned to Philip and he said, hey, where are we going to get food for all these people? You can almost see a smirk on Jesus' face, right? Like it says, he said this not because he didn't know what he was going to do, but in order to what? To test Philip. To test the disciples. Why is he doing that? Why is he going out of his way, to knowing what he's going to do, to multiply? Why is he testing? And then poor Andrew. I love Andrew, by the way. He's the little bro. He's the little brother. And you get the sense that at every turn, it's like Peter is sending like, hey, Andrew, you go tell him how many loaves and fish we got, all right? You know, but I don't know go, right? It's big brother, little brother dynamic. You didn't know that. He's getting picked on when he has to go tell Jesus, we have five and two. He's like, so... He said, but what are they for so many? Poor Andrew, gets, he gets the short end of the stick a lot among the disciples. But you gotta love him, right? He jumps right in there. So here's the thing. 
Jesus is challenging his disciples. How is he challenging them? What's he challenging them to know or to believe? To believe that he can do what looks impossible to them. What seems impossible to them, he wants them to see that when, you're, when you know me, there is nothing too difficult for me. There is nothing outside of my power. There is nothing I cannot do. He seems to take great delight in revealing more and more of his power, in particular to his disciples, not just to the crowds, but to his disciples as time goes on. Not long before this event, right? We're about two years into Jesus' ministry. There's one year to go. Verse four told us this is the Passover, which means the very next Passover, a year later, he was gonna be on the cross. So we're one year out from his crucifixion. And just before this, what he'd done was, well, he's gonna walk on water in a minute, so that's a fun one. Right, But right before this, in I think it was Mark chapter 4, just a few chapters before, do you remember what Jesus did? He's sleeping in the boat. The disciples are all freaked out, and he gets up, and he tells the wind and the waves to stop, and they do. He just keeps unveiling more and more of his power because he wants his followers to understand so that they can see that he's bred. There's nothing that's impossible for me. Friends, what looks impossible to you right now? What in your life, what act of service has God called you to? What way of serving the king have you been called to that you think to yourself, there's just no way. It's too big. And Jesus is challenging his disciples. He's challenging followers so that they would understand that nothing is impossible for him. Now there's a second way that he challenges them here too, and I love this, because he doesn't just say, look, you need to understand that nothing is impossible for me, and so I'm gonna challenge you in a way so that you would understand that. The other challenge that he gives is he tells them essentially to go out in the midst of their weariness, they're exhausted, they want rest, and he tells them to go and feed the crowd. He does the multiplying, but he feeds the crowd through whom? Through the disciples. He puts the food in their hands. He says, now you go and you feed them. You give them something to eat. And then at the end, how many basketfuls were left over? Twelve. How many disciples are there? Twelve. Why are there 12 basketfuls left over? Because what Jesus is saying to his followers is, when you give yourself away from me, when you weary yourself in service to me, there will always be enough for you. I will always provide enough for you. Have you exhausted yourself in the service of your king? My friends, I don't mean to say that there shouldn't be Sabbath and rest. That's a regular part. as a rhythm Jesus has told us to partake of. Absolutely. There should be regular rhythms of rest. But you know what I'm concerned about? I'm concerned about the fact that I think some of us are looking for rest all the time and we've never actually worked. We've never said, I'm gonna serve the Lord in every way he gives me opportunity to the point of weariness. Knowing and believing that he is enough and will give me what I need. That what Hebrew says is true. That Jesus is our rest. That our rest doesn't just come from sleeping and eating and taking seasons where we don't do work. Those are good things. But our true rest comes from the fact that we have been given peace with God through Jesus Christ. And according to Hebrews, that's what rest is. Rest of soul is knowing that you are in Christ before God and he is no longer in animosity towards you. That peace is what brings rest. Jesus challenges followers in these ways. Believe I can do the impossible and take up what seems like impossible tasks in my name. And he challenges his followers not just to take up what seem like impossible tasks in his name, but to believe that when we spend ourselves and are thoroughly weary, that he will provide all that we need, that he will be enough 
for us. Now, why does a, why does a follower need to be challenged in this way? Because we're going to see he's going to do something different for the fans, and he's going to do something different for the foes. But the followers need to be challenged. And why is that? Well, the first reason is because we tend to look to other things as life-giving bread that aren't life-giving bread. And it's not until we realize, it's not until we spend ourselves in these ways, it's not until we take up this challenge that Jesus gives that we find that it is absolutely true that nothing can satisfy the way he can satisfy. Do you know that you don't know how deeply Jesus can satisfy until you spend yourself in his name? You do not know how deeply Jesus can satisfy until you take up hard tasks in his name and spend yourself for the sake of the kingdom. And when you do that, you will find what it means that he is the bread of life. I have a friend, Michael Fletcher. I like the way he says it when he talks about serving Jesus. He says, if you're ready, you're late. If you think you're ready, then you're late. What's his point? You're never gonna feel ready. Go and serve. Do the thing he's put in front of you to do. He'll provide. He will be enough. So to what work is God calling you that just simply seems too big? Maybe you've been too scared to try it. And have you been tired in the service of the king? Man, if I had time here too, I'd love friends to go into a great theology of work because I don't mean that your work, your daily labor is not service to the king. Work done well, work done in God's name with excellence and in the character of God, work, that's kingdom expansive work. Evangelism and preaching, these are not the only kingdom works. So please don't hear me say that spending yourself means doing your 50-hour, 60-hour-a-week job and then figuring out some other way to serve. There are other ways to serve, but your 50, 60-hour-a-week should be kingdom-expanding work. If you're in education or law or medicine or you serve people or you're in retail, whatever it is that you do, there's a way in which that's kingdom work. And God is calling you to take it up <coughs> and to do it with excellence and to do it with a mind towards the kingdom. I don't have time to unpack all the different ways that, that our daily work, our vocations become kingdom work, but I, I want you to hear that. Spend yourself for the sake of the kingdom and you will find what it means that Jesus is true bread. What about the fans? So we come now, having challenged the followers, Jesus now comes to the fans and what does he do for them so that they would learn that he is the bread of life, that only he can truly satisfy? What he does is he compassionately clarifies for them. Jesus compassionately clarifies for fans so that they would know that he's true bread. So here's a fan. Here's my simple definition of a fan and I think it's borne out in this text. A fan is a person who mistakes means for ends. Now, do you know what I mean when I say that? A fan is a person who mistakes means for ends. In other words, they see Jesus' work and they love it, but they fail to understand the deeper truth that that work is pointing to. That's what happens here. There's a group of people who really love that Jesus turned a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish into a lot of loaves of bread and a lot of fish. And they love it because it really did a good thing for them. But at the end of the day, those same fans are willing to walk away when Jesus says hard things, confusing things, and why are they willing to walk away? Because they have confused the means by which Jesus is working to show them his great end, that he is bread. They've confused that as the end unto itself. 
And this happens all the time. And it's the great marker of a fan versus a follower. The fan is content to have Jesus do things for them. The follower is not content until they have Jesus himself. That's the great marker. Now watch what the fans do. And I should say here too, let's keep in mind, I love this about Jesus. He's so full of compassion There's a reason I said he compassionately clarifies because we're told in all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus looked upon the crowds with what? Compassion. Jesus is not angry at them. He's not dismissive of them. He just needs to do something for them to show them that he's true bread. And so he wants to clarify for them what he's up to and why he does what he does. And he's patient to do so and filled with compassion as he does. So look, Look at what he does in verse 26 and verse 27. Let me show you. We've moved on now to this conversation that Jesus is having with a group of fans who have come to find him again on the other side of the lake. So they're chasing after him. And it says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Okay, so he'd walked back across the water to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They chase him. They find him. They say, when did you come here? And then in verse 26, Jesus answered them, He's not going to answer their question. He does that a lot. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They turned means into ends. Do you see what I mean there? Okay? Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Here's what Jesus just said in those two verses. He said, you guys are content with the means. I don't want you to be content until you have the ends. Don't be satisfied with food that fills you up today, but ultimately what you'll have to eat again. Don't be satisfied until you've had the bread that leads to eternal life. Now later he's going to explain, he's going to keep explaining. He's going to say to them, I am that bread. I am that bread of life. He's actually going to paint faith in him, believing in him. He's going to say, He's going to say, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you haven't come to me. In other words, you have to take me in to find me to be soul satisfying. Obviously, he's using that as a metaphor for belief. He's saying, eating my body and drinking my blood, which I'm going to lay down on the cross, is going to be for you the thing you need. And in order to, to have it, you have to, you have to eat that body. You have to drink that blood. You have to take them into yourself. And he's saying you have to believe That's what he means through that metaphor. Now, why does a fan need, if a a follower needs to be challenged, why does a fan need compassionate clarification? Well, the first reason is because he wants fans to become what? Followers. And so he's going to clarify. He's going to explain. And they need that to happen. He wants them to become followers. And he does so, explains what he explains with a compassionate heart. But the second reason the fans need compassionate clarification is because the longer you go on turning means into ends, the more likely you are not just to mistake those two for one another, to think that the end result is really just the means that's pointing to another end. The longer you do that, the more you start to try and get Jesus to be about your means and turn them into his ends. See, that's what happens, and you may have missed this, but that's what happened in verse 15. 
See, in verse 4, what we heard was it was the Passover. And we might read right past that, but the thing to know about that is the Passover was a time of incredible nationalistic zeal for the members of the nation of Israel. This was the time of year where they always tended to look around and think to themselves, when are we going to be free from this Roman rule that's over us? We want these oppressors gone. And they think a lot about this Messiah who's going to come, this one called the Christ, who's going to come, and we hope he will deliver us from Roman oppression. And hey, by the way, here's a guy who just multiplied a bunch of bread and fish. Maybe he's the one who can free us from Roman oppression, which is why in verse 15 it says, Jesus left them because they, he perceived that they were going to come and do what? Take him by force and make him be king. That would have been an interesting scenario. In other words, what they're saying is, we have a certain end that we want you to accomplish. And Jesus is saying, that's not the end I'm here to accomplish. I'm not here to free you from Roman oppression. I'm not here to put you in a position of power. I'm here to show you what it, the power that you truly need to be saved from your sin. And I'm here to establish the kingdom of God, not overthrow Roman rule. And so the people are mistaking a means for an end. And this happens to us today. When we approach Jesus like a fan, what happens is we start to think that he needs to be about the thing that we want him to be about rather than letting him be about what he's about. And I'll tell you where we're, in, where, where we're finding this challenging as a church right now. For the first about 200 years of the history of our country, the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Judeo-Christian worldview has been the, the worldview in the seat of authority, in the seat of prominence, that has ceased to be the case or is increasingly ceasing to be the case since about the mid-1970s. We are losing power, culturally speaking. We are losing influence, and this is very concerning for a lot of Christians. And it's understandably so. But friends, can I tell you something? Tell you a couple things. Number one, having us in a cultural seat of power was never God's end. It's a means to an end. And often it's an ineffective means. In the places where Christians have held positions of cultural power throughout the history of Christianity, those are the places where Christianity is least effective in bringing the kingdom. Do you know that? It's when Christians lack power often that the kingdom is most fully established. Because God tends to use circumstances and situations that we don't expect and don't understand to bring about his work. God is at work establishing his kingdom. Can I tell you a second thing? No matter what happens in the future of our country, Jesus' kingdom will come into the world. Amen. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. Perhaps we will not win the day of influence in our country. Perhaps things will go even more sideways than they already are going. Those are still means to the ultimate end that Jesus will accomplish. He will establish his kingdom. I love that we sang in one of those songs, this gospel truth, it will not kneel and it will not faint. The gospel bends down to save people, but it kneels before no one. The gospel will reign victorious because our king is king of all. The third thing I want to tell you is this. Here's what happens when we get panicky about losing our cultural position of authority and power and losing our influence. It's right to engage politically. It is right to engage for laws that are moral and good or just. You should not abdicate that. 
It is right to do all those things. But ultimately, if our viewpoint does not win the day in our culture, here's what happens. Christians scramble trying to hold on to that influence and that authority, and they do so thinking that it's the end that God is aiming at, and it's not the end. It's a means to the end, and if he takes away the means, the end is still gonna come. And what happens is we align ourselves with people we should not be aligning ourselves with, and we concern ourselves with things we should not be concerned with. The kingdom of God comes through his people always and only when God's people concern themselves with justice and righteousness, not with power. The power of the gospel moves through his people humbling themselves and concerning themselves with the righteous character of God in all things and at all times and the justice of God poured out through themselves at all times. We can hold on to our power and we can lose a generation. There are hearts to be won for the sake of Jesus and they will be won through justice and righteousness, always. That is the call upon God's people is to be those who practice justice and righteousness. If we lose power, we lose power. But let us never lose justice. And let us never lose righteousness because these are the currency of the kingdom. And oh, how we need them. Last thing Jesus does is he talks to foes. If he challenges his followers and he compassionately clarifies for his fans so that they might become followers and see him as true bread, then what does he do with his foes? Well, he confronts his foes. Now, a foe is easy to define. A foe is someone who opposes the truth of Jesus. It's someone who opposes the truth that he proclaims about himself. In verse 41, we see it. In verse 41, we find this. I need to flip my page, sorry. In verse 41, it says, So the Jews, that's the religious opponents, grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In other words, they didn't like what he was saying about himself. You say you're bread, we don't agree. Right? And then look what happens next. Look how Jesus engages them. In verse 43, Jesus answered their grumbling. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you see what Jesus just said to his foes? They are saying, we don't believe that you're the bread you're saying that you are. And what Jesus says is, you know the prophets, and the prophets say that you will be taught by God. But I'm telling you, unless you come to me, you haven't been taught by God. Do you see how offensive that is to them? He's just told them, you think you know God, and you think you know his purposes in the world, but unless you come to me, you haven't learned from God. Now, Jesus is confrontational in this way, but what's so interesting is he's still invitational even while being confrontational. He's not angry. He's not yelling. He wants them to see that he's true bread. And just like he was compassionate and clarifying for fans, because that's what they needed to see that he was true bread, and just like he was challenging his followers because that's what they needed to see that he was true bread, he comes to these foes and he says to them, I'm just going to tell you like it is who I really am because you don't get it. And I'm going to confront your misconceptions. And so look what happens then in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
In other words, anytime Jesus says whoever believes has eternal life, why is he saying that? That's always, when Jesus says it, an invitation to the one hearing him to do what? To believe. So he's just said, you can't come unless the Father draws you. And you think you've learned from God, but you haven't learned from God because you haven't taken me as I am. And when you take me, then you've learned from God. Notice he sets the parameters and the categories for the foes. But then he invites them. Come. Come and believe. I've told you what is true. I am the bread of life. Now why does he do that? Fans need compassionate clarity. Followers need to be challenged. Why does he confront foes while still inviting them? And it doesn't seem in anger. It just seems in a straightforward manner to say, look, I'm going to confront you in this. Why does he do that? Well, because foes are people that aren't just kind of going, I'm, un- I'm confused about the purposes of Jesus. These are people who have heard the claims of Jesus, understood them, and rejected them. And how do you engage a person that's intelligently rejected what Jesus has said about himself? You confront and you have a, a, a conversation about truth and ideas. So the application here for us is, is this, I think. One, Engaging in these kinds of conversations of confrontation, you need to learn graciousness. Don't engage these conversations until you've learned graciousness and put away insecurity, okay? But then secondly, you have to make an effort to be trained. You have to make an effort to be trained to see how to, how to clarify and speak the truth of the gospel into different worldviews. And I'll tell you, in particular, in our day and age, the things you need to see how the gospel applies to more than any other things, because they are the thing that will either cause the rising generation to choose Jesus or walk away from him, is these three things. We're in the midst of a sexual revolution and confronting the idea that there would be any parameters or boundaries on your sexuality, your preference, your idea of your identity yourself, biologically, to confront that and to know how to do so with graciousness and kindness and love, you need to be well-trained in a biblical vision for sexuality and marriage. You need to be well-trained in a biblical vision for gender and identity. And you need to be well-trained in a biblical vision for the sanctity of life. It's value and meaning. Those three issues, and this is, now I know here, I'm not stating something that's straight from the scriptures. I'm just telling you my interpretation of our times. The church needs to know what it believes and how to make an argument for it with great graciousness and love, but with steadfastness in those three areas above all other areas. To be able to speak the truth about those things. Because a rising generation will often rise or fall in their belief in the gospel based upon their understanding of these things. Be trained.